Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit Cora.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words of scripture. Our first passage today is from Genesis. God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, a companion. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply. And from 1 Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And from Colossians, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of scripture. Love, we all need it. We sing songs about it, and we devote much of our lives to pursuing it. We were made for love, and we live longer, healthier, and happier lives when we both receive love and readily give it away. Yet, in our world, love often seems in short supply. Perhaps this is why Jesus spent so much time modeling it for us. The truth is, love matters. It has the power to enrich our lives, transform our relationships, and change the world. Love really is the answer. From a biblical perspective, love really is the answer. And not just a biblical perspective, from a human perspective, love is the answer. Now, we spent the last few weeks talking about love and trying to look at what does the Bible teach us about love. We were made for love, to receive love, to reciprocate love, to reflect love. We've learned about the various words for love. Philia, this is a word that means brotherly love or friendship. Uh, we've learned about agape, which is selfless love. It's, it's not a feeling, it's an action. It's a way of being and living towards other people, putting the needs of the other before your own and seeking the good for them and not to harm them. And, and, then, and then today we're gonna talk about eros. Eros is a word uh, that means, is translated literally as love, but it's, it's about that kind of romantic love. It's the passion, it's the affection, it's the, it's a, it's the desire for another human being. It's, it's both what we feel in the heart. We're madly in love with somebody. It's about dating, it's about marriage. It's also about physical intimacy. So the word eros is the, is the root of the word erotic. All of this is a part of the human condition. It's, it's how we live and it's our relationships. So today we're gonna spend a little time talking about eros and, uh, and, and what that looks like and how it is that we're meant to live this dimension of our human condition? How are we meant to love each other in a romantic way? Now, not everybody wants to be uh, married. Not everybody is going to be married. Not everybody wants to be in a dating relationship. We see that today. And in the data out, there's an increasing number of people who are single and who say, I'm pretty good with being single. 
But there are things that we're going to learn together, whether you intend to be single or married. There are things that we learn today from the scriptures about how eros and agape are meant to be connected together. I thought I'd begin with just a few interesting facts from the latest U.S. Census Bureau data. And so I want to start with this slide. And it just demonstrates that today, as opposed to 1950, where 78% of all people were households were married, today it's about half of that number. It's 48.8%. So it's declined dramatically in the last number of years, last few decades. Uh, The age at which people are getting married. So in 1960, I believe it was, men were 22 and women were 20. Today, men are 30 and women are 28 when they're getting married. And so we're finding people are waiting longer to get married than they did before. And that's you know, in some ways helpful because with less marriages, there are less divorces taking place and, uh, and people tend to be a little more mature when they're getting married and, and there are an increasing number of people who are getting married and not having children. All of this is a part of the, you know, the data that we have from the Census Bureau. We also know from the Pew Center uh, and the research they've done that those who are single, about, you know, close to half the population who are single, that group of folks, uh, some of them are saying it's hard to find somebody. It's, it's not easy. Even with dating apps, it's not always easy to find somebody. So I found this data interesting uh, from Pew Center. Uh, 67% of all singles, say, that is people who are dating, not people who are coupled up, but people who are dating, say it's not going very well. 67% say it's not going very well or uh, somewhat uh, well at all. 33% said it's going fairly well or very well. Uh, I want you to notice when it came to finding the kind of person you're looking for, 75% said it's very difficult to find the kind of person you're looking for or somewhat difficult. 25% said very or somewhat easy. And so I've heard this from people in our congregation, you know, who would like to be with somebody. They'd like to find a romantic partner, but it's not always easy. Even with dating apps, it's not always easy today to find somebody who mirrors your values, who reflects what you believe and what you care about. And so we're going to talk about that today too. We're going to talk a little bit about what singles in a survey that was taken this last week and married people and divorced people teach us about what they're looking for or what's working in a marriage or why their marriage has failed. So today we're going to, we're going to learn from each other here at Resurrection. But first I want to begin with this idea of, uh, of folks who are, or of how it is that we go about living out Eros when it comes to the physical dimension of our relationship. Now, I have a nine-year-old granddaughter. She's going to be in one of the services this weekend. So I have tried to write this part of the sermon thinking about her as sitting in the congregation. But I would say this is a little bit of a PG part of the sermon. Parental guidance suggested and may open up conversations for you uh, with your little ones. But let me just begin by reminding you that if you go to the beginning of the Bible, you find in the creation story that one of the things that God created is physical intimacy. God created sex. It was God's big idea. He created our bodies the way they are, with nerve endings and feelings the way they are, with the, with the capacity to have hormones that, that work in a certain way. And so this was a gift from God. When we read in Scripture, you get to the end of Genesis chapter 2, and you find that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are you know, together. And it says that they, were, they, they cling to one another, and they became one flesh, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. So this is a euphemism for physical intimacy and for the act of marriage. And so this is not bad. It's not something shameful. It's not something dirty. It was something beautiful. God made it. And so they were naked, and they were not ashamed. The problem, of course, is that sin ends up coming into the picture as well. In our lives, we have a tremendous drive to reproduce, and we may not want to have children, but there's something in us that that drives us towards being with another. And we have a deep longing for love and to be loved by another person and to give love away. And so so this romantic part of our lives is a good and beautiful thing, but there's also something in us that tends to, you know, tends to go astray. We talked about it last week, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so when you bring together the sex drive and the sin drive, 
sometimes we find our love becomes misdirected, as we talked about last week. It becomes disordered. And that brings not the joy that God intended, but pain in our lives. I just remind you too that this, uh, this gift from God was intended in part, uh, you know, God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. So this was, you know, this was not that everybody who gets married is going to have children, but this was a part of the picture too. All right, so when we look at this, uh, this idea of love and desire and how it gets misdirected, we find in the Bible, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you're going to be shocked by some of the things you read. I have a lot of people like, oh, the Bible is such a holy book. I'm like, yes, it is a holy book. And you're going to find a lot of real humanity in there and some stuff that even in the 21st century causes you to raise an eyebrow or to scratch your head or go, really? I mean, it's shocking some things that we read in the Hebrew Bible when the, uh, when the drive for physical intimacy gets messed up with our sin drive. So among the Bible's heroes, Eros becomes misdirected and disordered. Solomon, he has, you know, he's written a number of the uh, books of the Bible, the, particularly the wisdom literature. Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Or David forces Bathsheba, Bathsheba to lie with him. There's so many others where, where we find that in these stories in the Hebrew Bible, people just got it wrong. They, they brought pain and hurt because they had a disordered Eros. Now, I think about that, and that's not just true of people a long time ago. That's also true for us today. So I think we're a society and a world, really, that's, that's somewhat confused about how this is supposed to work. And so we go looking for love in all the wrong places. I was thinking Katie Couric's uh, website suggested last year, it came across my feed, uh, this title to an article, You Might Want to Try an Open Marriage. I thought that was fascinating because you know what? That was tried for thousands of years or over a thousand years in the late Bronze Age in the Bible. And it was utter failure. People were broken and hurt by this. But, but today we think it's a new idea. Let's try something new. Let's have an open marriage. Well, you know, maybe there are people who somehow figure out how to make that work. But for most people, that's just pain. There's somebody who's going to get hurt in the midst of that. And there's never the bonding that God intended to happen when you have an open marriage. Or, or uh, I think about polyamory. So a New, York, New Yorker magazine, New York magazine, excuse me, recently ran a cover story called Polyamory, a practical guide for the curious couple. And it had all kinds of kittens on the front. And I thought, now that's really interesting, you know, because again, this was tried in polygamy in the Old Testament and it utterly failed in the end. I mean, there was always somebody who was hurt by this practice. And it used to be when I was growing up, you know, you would debate, well, is it okay to have a kiss on the first date? Today, we're not debating whether we have a kiss on the first date. Today, we're debating whether we round the bases on the first, ba- first date. I mean, you know, 69% of America, by the way, in a recent poll said, yeah, let's not do that on the first date. Let's wait a little while. But, but you know, 31% of people are still debating. Is it, is it okay on the first date? Maybe that's just what we do now when we go out on a date. We go to the movies and we, we reveal ourselves completely to another human being. I mean, it just seems like we've sort of you know, we are what we are as human beings. We're sexual creatures. That's just, that's, that's who we are. There's nothing bad about that. It's just that sometimes we don't remember what's the purpose of this and how's it supposed to work. In 2023, the world's largest porn site had 5.8 billion, billion visits each month. Now, there's only 7.7 billion people on the planet. Now, those weren't 5.8 different individuals. Those are some people going back 10 or 20 or 30 times, I suppose. But still, you think about that, 5.8 billion site visits uh, per month that's 700 million more than Amazon gets. I mean, there's something disordered about this, something misdirected. And again, I think the problem is when we have Eros and we divorce it from agape, 
So these two kinds of love are meant to go together. We have eros, the romantic, passionate, physical kind of love. It's, you know, that, 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 that deep love for another human being, madly in love. But if we have that, the desire, the, the longing, the physical longing, we have that, and we separate it from agape, which is this idea of selflessly loving another, seeking to bless, care for, divorced from feelings, although it, it plays some role in our feelings. These two things have to go hand in hand. And when we separate them, there's pain. When we think about the principle of, of sexual ethics, so how do we find in Christianity a principle for sexual ethics? We don't go back and quote just this particular verse or that verse out of its historical context. Instead, we look at what's the big idea. And the big idea in the Bible is agape. It shows up over and over and over again in the New Testament. And Hesed in the Old Testament, faithful love, covenant love. These two ideas are really, really important. Selfless love, caring for the other, being concerned for them, seeking the good for the other person. Eros needs agape. And so this is part of what we find when we read the scripture. The apostle Paul, he has to address this over and over again in the early, you know, in the early churches, the Greco-Roman world. And he talks about this disordering of the sex drive. And he, he's, he refers to it as porneo, from which we have our word pornography or porn. Porneo means sexual immorality. So he saw it as diminishing us as bringing shame in our lives or separating us from God or causing harm to other people. He said, this does not look like loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbors you love yourself and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. So this idea is that there is an ideal and that ideal, of course we have Eros and it's beautiful and lovely. And that gift from God is meant to be used and practiced in the context of agape of selfless love, seeking the best of the other, seeking to do what's right and good, both towards God and towards other people. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and, and Corinth was the most, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a community where there were lots of brothels, and there was a lot of sort of sexual activity in the community that was, I mean, the whole Roman Empire knew it was a place to go if you wanted to be immoral with people. And so here are Christians in this church that he started. He was there for 18 months, and he started this church. And then he writes a letter back to them, say, hey, you know, I hear you're struggling with some of these things. Now, let me be a pastor to you and help you. And he says, you know, some of you have said, I have the right to do anything. And Paul replied, but I will not be mastered by anything. Uh, he says, uh, I, I have the, uh, I'm sorry. He says, I have the right to do anything. He says, not everything is beneficial. Then he says, but I will, uh, he says, I have the right to do anything. He's quoting the Corinthians, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. So you might, it might be legal for you to do this, but it doesn't mean it's good for you to do this. And then finally, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, porneo, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so therefore glorify God with your body and live out agape with this part of your life as well. The tender touch, the love, the care that's meant to build up another and to bless them. And I will tell you, when it comes to the intimate part of your life, when you have in mind agape, that I'm seeking to bless this person and to love them and to care for them. And this is one way I do that. Eros moves to a whole new level. When we remember what it was created for. All right, that leads me to think about the purpose of romance and marriage. So when we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we go back to that archetypal story of the very first wedding and we find a God creates the man and then God looks at the man. You remember in Genesis 1, he creates everything and everything he saw is good. But then you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and the story starts over again. And here God has just created the man and he's placed him in the midst of paradise. And then we read these words, it's not good. So everything was good until you get to this point. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, a companion. I mean, so what God saw was that as human beings, we have within our, in, you know, our inherent nature, a longing to have partners and companions. Now that doesn't mean everybody's supposed to be married. Some people are, have the gift of celibacy. They're going to be single. 
But, but many of us, most of us, find ourselves yearning to have that kind of partner, that kind of companion. Now, everybody needs a partner and companion. So for some people, that's through deep friendships with people. That's connections with people. And they are your partners and your companions and you are theirs. And that's beautiful and lovely. And that's part of what the church is meant to be. But we also know that for some of us, we're looking for that kind of person who's going to be walking with us in life. So marriage was a solution to a problem. It's a solution, not the only solution to a problem. So God says, I will make you a helper, a companion. The word helper in Greek, as many of you know, is edzer. Edzer means one who is stronger, who comes along to save the weak. So it's not like God's going to make the little helper for the man to help him out. It's God's going to bring one who is stronger, who's going to deliver him. And the word edzer is almost always used of God in the Bible. But here in Genesis, it's used of God creating the second human being, what I sometimes refer to as the new and improved model of the human being, the woman. And she's going to be the helper, the deliverer, the strength for this man. And vice versa, we would say today, the man is also meant to be an edzer, a helper to the woman. We also find a second word that's used here, kenego, kenegdo. Kenegdo is a word that describes one who stands near you. So they're standing by you, in front of you, around you. They are journeying with you. Uh, one, you know, one way of thinking about it is one who stands near a counterpart, a partner, or a companion. And so that first marriage was teaching us. It was an archetypal story that's saying, this is what this is about for you too. That if you get married, your task is to be helpers and companions for each other. It doesn't say you're to be madly in love with each other all the time. That's impossible. You cannot always be at this level of you know, infatuation and love and desire all the time with the same person. You're going to get irritated with each other and frustrated. And there's going to be seasons where you don't feel in love and other seasons where you feel very much in love. But what I love about this passage is it helps me. I'm the kind of guy who wants to know, like, what's the purpose? You know, if, I, if I'm going to do something, what's the mission? What's the aim? I need to know the, the mission. Well, the mission of marriage here, and when I wake up in the morning and I pray for Levon and I pray for God to guide me and use me and make me, a, you know, and, and be the husband that she needs me to be, I'm praying, God, help me to help her. Help me to help her be the person you want her to be. Help me to bless her. Help me to encourage her. Help me to lift her up. Help me to stand by her. Help me to befriend her. That's the aim. That's the purpose in marriage. All right, now that's not the only purpose. We again learn be fruitful and multiply. So we learn that marriage was also the vehicle or the, the means in which or the, the relationship in which children were to be to conceive, were to be conceived. And so uh, so this idea that, you know, now again, single moms out there, amazing single dads is, you know, people are raising kids. I was raised in a single parent home. And and so, uh, you know, that's, that's nothing, it's not saying anything about that. It's just saying that the ideal is the two people who love each other fiercely and relentlessly are going to bring children into the world and they're going to work together to raise that child up. And, uh, and so that was the ideal from the beginning. And when we think about this, um, there was a study that was done recently by the Pew Research Center and they found that, that couples who were living together, not married and had children, and then couples who had gotten married and had children, that there was a slight difference in how, you know, how often their marriages worked or how often their relationship worked. And they found that, that children who were born into a family where the couple had actually said the I do and the I will questions, that they were 2.5 times more likely to have those same parents living in the home when they were nine years old as those who had not made that commitment. There was something that was sticky about getting married, married something that held, held people together despite the adversity or the challenges by virtue of marriage. It is a covenant or a promise that we make. All right, in addition to that, uh, we remember that, that in marriage, we're meant to help one another to grow in 
our faith. And so the Apostle Paul says to husbands, 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 love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us, to, to help us become what God intended for us to be. Wives and husbands are to do that for each other. We are, to, we are to love one another, to care for one another, and to help each other grow in faith. And so if you think about the goal of the Christian life is sanctification. It's to be made holy. It's to be perfected in love. And you, if you're in a married relationship, you are the instrument or one of the instruments that God uses to help your partner grow in their faith. Sometimes we need to encourage each other. You know, sometimes one partner is sort of drifting away from God and the other one's saying, come on, you know, let, let's, let's go, let's go to church. Or how about if we study the scripture? Or why don't we get in a Bible study? Or, you know, this is part of what we do is we encourage each other in the faith. So all of these are, are reasons why in scripture we find that God institutes this idea of marriage. Now, I want you to listen once more to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter three. Virtually everything we read in the New Testament is written to Christians and how we treat each other. But by virtue of that, almost everything we read in the New Testament is also informing us in how we live a healthy and beautiful married life. And so Paul writes in Colossians three, a passage I read at almost every wedding service that I conduct. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, and he means all of us, but certainly when I'm looking at the bride and the groom, I'm looking right at them saying, you're those chosen people too. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved by God, clothe yourselves. That is put on so that other people see it. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Can you imagine? I mean, if that's what you see in your mate and that's what your mate sees in you, it's kind of hard to mess this thing up. So then he goes on to say, bear with each other. That is put up with each other because he knows you're going to irritate each other, right? That's just life. So you got to bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Last week we learned about forgiveness. That's letting go. And that's what Paul's saying here. Three times he mentions the word forgive in this text because every relationship is going to need to be well-oiled by grace or forgiveness. And then he says this, over all these virtues, put on love, agape, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is why when we go to church, when we're active in our faith, our marriages are better most of the time. I mean, there's things that can still cause problems, but if we are striving to be the people God wants us to be and we're asking for God's help and we are putting on you know, compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and we're binding everything together in agape and we're forgiving each other and bearing with each other, we have a much greater likelihood that this thing's gonna work when we actually live these words. And that's what we find. Every, every study, every poll, when you find people who are seeking to live out their faith, it, things go better in their relationships, in their intimate relationships. All right, so that leads me to share with you some concrete data from the survey we took this week. So last weekend, I asked you if you would take the survey. We had over 4,000 people take the survey. The data that I'm about to share with you didn't come from a book I read somewhere, didn't come from an article in the New York Times. It came from you. If not you, then people like you who are worshiping with us on TV, online at our various locations and, at, uh, you know, and, and who are a part of this congregation. So I wanna share with you some of this data because it's really good stuff and it helps us understand something about what it takes to make this thing work for a lifetime. So let me just show you, this is a chart that shows how many people in our congregation said they were very happy at various times in their lives. So this is, our marriage is very happy by years married. All right, and what you see is that in less than five years, 55% said they were very happy. Now, I guess if we could go back to like the first week, we would find that number a little bit higher, but 55% in the first, uh, in that first five years uh, report they're very happy in their marriage. But I want you to notice what happens here. So it drops off a cliff right? At, 
after year five? What happens after year five that causes marital satisfaction to drop from 55% to 46%? And then what happens to see it drop to 40%? Well, here's kid one and here's kid two and maybe kid three or four somewhere in there. And so what we find is children, if I could show you the same survey, the same data for only the people who were, who were married but not with children, you'd find it doesn't look like that. It looks different. This is what it looks like when people have children. And look, it's not saying that you're going to be unhappy when you have children. 46, 40%, 43% were still very happy. The rest were pretty much happy, but or many of the rest were pretty much happy. But marital happiness goes down. And I want you to see this. I share this every time I preach this data. It's called the U-shaped curve of marital satisfaction over time. Every researcher around the world has found the exact same data. doesn't matter the culture, the religion, the same thing happens. You start having children and the time that you have to invest in each other goes way down. The, the, the amount of fun, the, the romantic things you're doing, the dates, all of that, you're more tired. And, and of course, this is also happening at the same time, many of you are trying to launch your careers. And so, so in all of this, it's just hard. It just gets hard during that period of time. Why am I sharing this with you? Actually, let's look at the, let's look at the chart again. So this is that U-shaped curve here. But I want you to notice year 10 to 14, it bottoms out. This is where you have your kids and you know, they're in elementary school and sometimes you got little ones too. And then it starts to go up a little bit. Well, what happens around year 15 to 19? Well, kids start growing up. They're more independent. And, and you know, 20 to 24. So those kids are getting ready to move out of the house. And then look what happens around year 24 where your kids start moving out of the house. Married 24 years, kids moving out of the house, and marital satisfaction goes up. And then a second child somewhere along the way is going to move out of the house. This period is, can be a little bumpy because, you know, you're trying to learn how to do life again together. But look what happens. You're 35 to year 40 and how much happiness increases. And I want you to notice for people who've been married more than 40 years, their marital satisfaction at 60 is higher than the marital satisfaction when they were only married for five years. There's something amazing that happens if you just hang in there, which is why I love to share this data because I know there's some of you watching this message right now, some of you sitting in one of our locations online, on TV, in the foundry, and as you're sitting there, you know, you're struggling a bit and you've lost that loving feeling. Well, that's normal. Doesn't mean there's something wrong. Doesn't mean you need to, need to get a divorce. It means you got to go, okay, this is a harder time in our lives. And we got to be intentional about doing some things to keep our love alive while we're devoting so much of our time and energy to taking care of these kids and helping them grow up. You love your kids so much, but you got to do both of these things together. And if you fail to do that, you're going to watch those numbers continue to go down. But here's the thing. If you're struggling right now, it doesn't stay this way forever. And if you hang in there, you get happier and happier and happier. So Levon and I have been married over 40 years now. And I can tell you, I share this with you many times. We are more in love and there is more joy in our lives and more happiness than we've ever known. But we went through that time and we were seeing a counselor at one point during, yeah, a couple times actually, during that period of time. Like I'd written books on, on you know, marital love and how this thing works and what the Bible teaches. And we're still struggling because we got two little kids at home and it's just hard. And so really the message from this chart is hang in there and don't give up. All right, so I want to share with you uh, just a little bit more uh, from our charts, from our data. So let's take a look at this chart. And uh, this is single adults. And we, we ask single adults in our congregation, what attributes do you most desire in a partner? So you might get your phone out and take a picture of this. Even if you're married, I'd like for you to take a picture of this. So honest and trustworthy. That was the number one response. Um, notice, none of these, the number one responses, I'm looking for somebody who is beautiful or handsome. I mean, that's important. And it's down here somewhere, but it's not the top six. So honest and trustworthy. Uh, humorous and fun, a good communicator, emotional stability, that's a big one, strong faith, and compassion. Take a picture of that. All right, the reason why I care about that and what singles say they're looking for in a potential mate or somebody they want to date is 
with LaVon, I want to be the kind of person that she would want to date if we were not married. Wouldn't you want to be that kind of person for your spouse so that there, you are becoming and intentionally being the kind of person they would want to be married to if they were not already married to you? All right, so I want to turn to what our divorced people said were the number one reasons for their divorces. Again, this is not out of a book somewhere. This is you. These are people in our congregation who have experienced divorce, and we asked why, what happened? So I want you to notice, 43% infidelity. So I look at that, and I think about Katie Couric's article, and it wasn't Katie, it was somebody on her website, but Katie Couric's article about trying an open marriage, this does not work. This, I mean, yes, some people try to have some kind of agreements, but you know what? So you weren't meant to share. You were meant to be, you know, when, I don't want to share LaVon with somebody else. I don't want to, I, I, don't want, I don't want her to want me to be shared with somebody else. When in scripture, when they talk about intimacy, the euphemism that's used is to know, you know somebody. And the thing is, you know, you know them naked. You know every part of them. You know their heart and their soul and their mind. And that's something that's meant to bind you together. It's meant that the oxytocin that's released in your brain in the midst of the act of making love is meant to bind you together. What happens when we start being bound together with all these other people? That's not how it's supposed to work. And so we see that in divorce, that the number one reason for divorce among the people in our congregation and our survey was infidelity. Number two was a lack of communication. It was really important. Some of us are not really great at communicating. We got to work at that if we're not. Dishonesty. Man, that'll just kill a marriage when you're lying repeatedly to one another. Abuse, physical, emotional, verbal. 28% simply said they grew apart. That's that, again, when you think about that U-shaped curve and what happens over here. And then substance abuse, 21%. There are other answers that were given, but these were the top six answers on what happened that caused a marriage to fail. Take a picture of that. Go ahead, put it back on the screen for just a second if you would. And if you just take a picture of that with your phone, because it's really helpful to, to look at that and say, am I struggling with any of these things? Are there any ways in which I need to be a different kind of person so that our marriage might make it? Or if I'm dating, I want to be somebody who might, you know, if I get married, I want them to stay with me forever. So let's, let's, let's work on these things as well. We asked people who were over, who'd been married over 50 years. That's a long time, five decades. Can you imagine? We asked them on the survey, tell us what it takes to make marriage last for a lifetime. So they wrote in answers. They, they could choose from some answers, but then we asked them just to write out, what would you say, what advice would you give to young people getting married today? So this was their advice to you. Number one, commitment, effort, and work. This is what it takes to make marriage work. It's commitment, it's effort, it's perseverance, it's don't give up because every single one of them who'd been married more than 50 years could point back to things that were hard in their, time, in their lives, moments of that bottom of the U-shaped curve, other times where they were ready to give up, but they didn't give up. So commitment, effort, and work. The second was faith and shared values, that this plays a really important role, that the core of who you are and what you're aiming in life, what really matters to you, you share in common. doesn't mean that people can't make it work if they're in different religions, but it just is so much different when the core, what's really at the center of your life is shared the same. Number three is communication. So the ability to talk and share with one another. Number four, friendship and fun. So that's, this is really important, that continuing friendship and romancing each other, dating each other, and then honesty. These were their top five answers. The people have been married over 50 years in our congregation to all the rest of us. Now, listen, there are marriages that are going to struggle. 
So uh, when we read in the Bible, you know, divorce is not God's will. It's not what he wants to have happen. But even with Moses, there was a permission, there was allowance for divorce. Jesus lifts up this high ideal. Unless there's been infidelity, you're supposed to stay married. But then Jesus loves a woman who's been married and divorced five times and shows her great grace and mercy, offers her living water and calls her to be the first missionary to the Samaritans. I mean, Jesus, you know, lifts up these ideals and then he understands that we're broken. So here's the thing, we're, we're meant to give it our all. We're meant to keep going and try and, and to work things out. And, and, and so that's really important. I have known of marriages that were so toxic and so painful. And when I look at them, I think God never intended marriage. He intended marriage to be a blessing. Remember, uh, I will make him a helper as a companion to, to address the loneliness. And, and I will, uh, you know, allow them to be, you know, naked and not ashamed and cling to one another and, and, and to, you know, have this healthy environment to raise children. But there are times where there are marriages that are so toxic and so broken. And I don't think God ever intended marriage to be a lifelong prison sentence to a toxic and just painful relationship with somebody else. So we work at it. We try to, you know, we, all that. But I will say this. So I'm advocating for you to try as hard as you can and to keep going in your marriage because most of the time we can work through those things. But I'm also wanting to say to people who've gotten divorced and they were in a toxic relationship that marriage is not the unpardonable sin and that Jesus showed grace and mercy to people who were divorced and he loved them and he understood the pain and he doesn't want his children to be in pain their whole lives in a toxic relationship. I've known people who stayed in marriages where they were beaten and abused. And that should never happen because that was never God's intention for what marriage was supposed to be. That's, that stopped being a marriage long before. All right. I, I want to give you, as we prepare to wrap up, uh, some really simple, very simple clues as to what you might do to improve the likelihood of being in a very happy marriage. This is, so what we did is we asked people to rate how happy their marriage was. And then we also asked them to talk about different things that they did or practiced. And we looked to see for the people in the happiest marriages, how did that correlate to the things that they actually did? So let me just show you these things real quick. I'd love for you to write them down. So first, uh, first as we look at these is, um, is dating. So date nights. Remember, the people who've been married more than 50 years said they had fun and, and, they, you know, and, and they continue to romance each other. Well, date nights are important. Percentage of couples who were very happy, 69% of couples who went on a weekly date, they had a night out where they went out to play and have fun, 69% were very happy in their marriage. The couples who never went on a date, only 26% were very happy in their marriage. Now, it, clearly, 26% of the people, it works. But I want you to notice what happens when you start increasing the number of times that you go on a date, that you manage to, to go out and romance each other and have a nice, fun night out, you got to continue to have fun. Let's look at the second thing. So that's number one is date nights. Again, more than double, uh, you know, you, you see the number of people increasing dramatically, more than double, who are very happy with weekly dates, even twice a month or monthly. All right, here's the second, time and meaningful conversation. So we asked couples, how much time do you spend in meaningful conversation? So the people who spent less than 30 minutes a day in meaningful conversation, only 27% of them were very happy in their marriage. 80% of the people who spent an hour a day in meaningful conversation were very happy. More than two times, almost three times the ratio of people very happy when they spent more time in conversation, 62% for people 30 to 60 minutes a day. Now, most of our folks were in this category here and somewhere in this category over here. But here's the thing, it's just so simple. It's turning off the TV. It's having a meaningful conversation with each other. It's conversation before you go to bed at night, but it's you know putting everything else down and listening. How was your day? Tell me about what you were feeling today. What was going on? Is the ability to share with each other what's going on in your heart and your mind. And when you share and you listen and you evidence that you're listening, that goes a long way in increasing the likelihood of being a very happy in your marriage. All right, so let's take a look at sexual intimacy, physical intimacy. Now, uh, 39% of the people who never were physically intimate 
that is sexual intimacy, but we're very happy in their marriage. Many of these said, you know what, we're older and we, you know, and, and we're physically, we can't do what we've done before. Um, and some were just, that's just not an important part of their lives. 71% of the people who were intimate three or more times a week were very happy in their marriage. Now, let me just tell you, only 3% of the survey were intimate three times uh, or more per week. So I just want to make sure you have realistic expectations here. Uh, most of our people were somewhere in this range over here. But I do want you to notice there is, an, there is some correlation between physical intimacy and being very happy in your marriage. And it's, it's really a question of the chicken and the egg. Are you more frequently intimate because you're already very happy because you're doing all these other things right? Are you uh, very happy because you're more frequently intimate? Well, probably it's a little bit of both of those things, but there is some correlation there. And so working on all the other stuff that helps you be very happy probably re re results in an increase in, uh, in the quality of your intimate relationship in this way. Okay, two last things I want to show you, and this has to do with the connection between faith and your, uh, and your happiness in marriage. So praying together. So 41% of people who never or seldom prayed together were very happy in their marriage. 67%, so it's more than a 50% increase of people who prayed together at least daily were very happy in their marriage. This is not that hard. And most of our people are not doing this. So at mealtimes, how about you just start at mealtime? You're sitting down together at the kitchen table. One of you says, hey, it's your turn. Why don't you pray? Okay, thank you, God, for everything. Thank you for this food. Thank you for my wife. Make me a blessing to her. Amen. Thank you for my husband. Make me a blessing to him. This simple little prayer doesn't take much, but when you do that and you make it, you're intentional about that. I mean, if I could tell you some other way, here's a pill you can take and your marriage will be 50%, 55% happier. Wouldn't you do it? But here, so simple, praying together. It connects you together. And, and here's the last one. And this is going to worship together. So take a look at this. 28% of couples who rarely or never worship together were very happy in their marriage. 61% who uh, weekly worship together, were very happy in their marriage. I mean, think about that. Who would have thought if you just go to church together, you sit by each other, you sing the songs, or you listen to other people sing the songs, you listen to the message, you, you know, you're involved in the service, and, and you leave, 110% more likely to be very happy in marriage than if you didn't do those things. This is just not that complicated. There's something that happens when we're connecting to the source of our lives and our love. All right, I want to end with this. We, uh, this week, I had a funeral service. I was standing right here and preaching that service. It was for a man named Steve Sutherland, a member of our congregation. His wife, they've been members for 15 years, really great guy. His wife, uh, Liz, um, they were married 22 years ago. She had shared with me just how deeply she loved him. The best 22 years of her life were these 22 years with Steve. Here's a picture of Steve and uh, Liz, a beautiful picture, and just two really great people. Steve was in the optical industry, Sutherland Optical, and, and, um, and at part of the service, Liz said, you know, I'd like to share a few things about Steve. And I'm like, if you can do it, that's amazing. So she stood right where I'm standing now. And she talked about these things that she loved about her husband and how grateful she was for the people caring for her. And she talked a little bit about some things that she would encourage other people to do. And I thought, wow, that is exactly what I'm preaching about this weekend. So after the service, a couple of days later on Friday, I called Liz up and I said, Liz, could you just repeat for me again what you think I should share with this congregation that you experienced that helped you and Steve love one another and have these be the best years of your life. And she said, well, first of all, I don't want to have any illusions that we had this perfect marriage because we didn't have a perfect marriage. Sometimes it was hard. And sometimes it was irritating and I was irritating and it was, you know, we had to work through stuff. But she said, nevertheless, it was the best years of my life. I loved him so much and he loved me. And I said, well, what, what, what'd that look like? And she said, it was the little things. He always sought to bless me and help me and take care of me. When I asked for something, he would always reply. Uh, he would say, that's what I live for is to do this for you. 
And he said, she said, there's just something about that. And I tried to do the same thing for him. Do you notice that's helping each other? I will make him a helper as his companion, as her companion. Uh, she said, we're all annoying at times. We have our annoying habits. I realized I'm not going to change his and he's not going to change mine. So I need to learn to understand him and learn to love the man he is. And he needed to learn to love the woman I am, not the woman he wished I would be. It's pretty good advice. And then finally, she said, you know, the most, the, one of the most important things we did is we never left each other without kissing each other goodbye and saying, I love you. And on the day that he passed, she was going to the gym to work out. He was in good shape. He was going downstairs to work out, to, to work on the treadmill. And before she walked out the door, she went up to him and said, I love you. And he said, I love you. And they kissed each other. And she didn't realize that was the last kiss she'd ever give him. And that was the last time she would ever say, I love you. And how grateful she was that that was what they did every single time they were together. And, you know, that day he met his heavenly father and she was left with the loss of her partner and companion. But she knew she was loved and he knew that, she was, that he was loved in the way they shared it with each other. Here's a picture of the two of them, one more picture. And I just love this. Just captures so well the love that they shared for one another. So listen, remember the mission. Don't forget. Remember, it's eros is wonderful and good, but it's meant to be coupled with agape, which is the self-giving love, the, the doing the loving thing for the other. And all of that is meant to be coupled with philia, which is friendship. And when we can practice eros with agape and philia, what we find is the kind of love that has a good chance of lasting a lifetime. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you and praise you that you created us with the capacity to love other people as deep friends and dear friends, but also sometimes as lovers, as partners and spouses, husbands and wives. We thank you, O oh Lord, for all your blessings. And we pray that you would help us for those who are not married and who have no interest in being married. I pray that you would help them to be able to find those companions and helpers and to live this kind of agape and philia towards their friends and others. I pray, O oh Lord, for those who will be called to be married, that you would prepare them to be able to rightly practice eros with agape and philia and to love one another well. And for those, O oh Lord, who are in marriages, I pray that you would strengthen and bless their marriages. For those who are, who are feeling a bit hopeless, I pray that you would help them to find hope and remember the mission to be partners and companions on this journey. I pray that you would heal broken hearts and marriages. And I pray that you would guide and lead all of those who are listening to this message that we might, that we might live a life of love that we might be helpers and companions for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.